Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. We will get there eventually. What I've been doing the last couple of weeks is combining a bit of Nehemiah with a bit of Zechariah. Even though Zechariah slightly predates the book of Nehemiah, it's still part of this return of the Jews to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple and then under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the structure of Jerusalem as a city. And because the work on the temple had stopped for a while, God had sent Haggai and Zechariah to go encourage the people to rebuild. And so we had looked at some of the Haggai stuff while we were looking at Ezra. But uh, we haven't really done the whole book of Zechariah, but I've been pulling out the key points as we've been going along. And the last couple of chapters of Zechariah get very eschatological. Do you know what I mean when I say eschatological? I'm not asking you. I'm asking them. It just means end times. Eschatological just means last day stuff. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Zechariah's eschatological stuff because you're going to see a great deal of confirmation of the things you see in the New Testament where eschatology is concerned. And so much of what is said at the end of Zechariah is why I take a premillennial view of the Bible. Because it's very clear and very obvious in Zechariah when you combine Zechariah's predictions and eschatology with the New Testament stuff, you end up premillennial. But we'll talk about that next week because the next part of Nehemiah is actually about the history of Israel. So I had to decide, do we do a week of eschatology and then a week of history, or do we do a week of history and then a week of eschatology? And it just seemed more sensible to go history first and then eschatology. So Nehemiah, starting in chapter 8, is where we left off last week. And then in chapter 9, I have been telling you for a couple of weeks that the folks of Israel, once they had rediscovered the law of God, that they end up taking a vow that they will actually follow the things that Ezra is saying. And that's really what chapter 9 of Nehemiah is about. But it's a long chapter, but it's a chapter that is largely narrative because it is a really good recounting of the history of Israel. So we're going to get to that and read that this evening. Everybody's got a story. Uh, Part of the reason that I like history is because I like the story of how people got to where they are. When you look at the world right now, such as it is, there are people groups all over the planet, different tribal groups, different nationalities, different languages, And how did they get here? How did they arrive here in the 21st century being who they are and being what they're like? And the only way to explain 
how people ended up where they ended up is to look at their history. That's the only way you can do it. You have to go back and look at their story. And so that's what historians try to do. Historians are really just studying the story of people. How did people end up where they ended up? We all have a story, how we ended up here. If someone were to say to me, how did you end up in Middle Tennessee? Well, I would tell them my history. I would say I was born in Detroit, but then, you know, after traveling and all over the country and California and blah, blah, and now Middle Tennessee, that's how I got here. Well, that would be my story and my history to tell you how we got here. Uh, The church has a 2,000-year history and a story that goes with it starting at Jesus and then moving through the last 2,000 years. The Reformation has a story behind it, and it has a history behind it, and it's the, the story that makes you understand Reformed thinking because the story would include, well, Catholic thinking and how Catholicism had become dominant in Europe and how there was opposition to that sort of works-based doctrine and so salvation by grace doctrine had it well see what I'm doing is I'm telling you the story I'm telling you the history the Jews were very big into their story is my point but they weren't all good at writing there was not a lot of writing going on in the Middle East mostly because there weren't a lot of ballpoint pens (laughs) and there wasn't a lot of paper And it was difficult to write things down. Early uh, Hebrew, early Aramaic are basic languages with limited nuance and meaning. And so the stories, rather than being written and handed down to us, were told generation to generation. Parents would tell their children. Parents would tell their children. And so Israel as a group all had kind of a common telling of their story, how they ended up where they ended up, how they got here. Now, in this portion of chapter 9 that we're going to read this morning, this morning, wow, I just got up. No, that's not true. (laughs) This portion of chapter 9 that we're going to read this evening is the story of Israel. Finally, Nehemiah figured we should write this down. And several times as you go through the Old Testament, you find the stories of Israel. And it always starts at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then it goes through the the events up till the time that that person wrote it down. But now at Nehemiah, we're getting very near the end of the Old Testament. After the time of Nehemiah, we have no more history books in the Old Testament. Even though we've still got... Zechariah doing some prophetic work during the time of Ezra, and even though we've got the book of Malachi that's happening during the time of Nehemiah, we're really at the end of Israel's history when we get to the end of Nehemiah, and that's just a couple more chapters. And then we're done historically with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament ends with, once again, they write down the story. How did we get to this place? How did we end up here and what condition are we in at this point before God and sadly their story is one of God's absolute faithfulness which I think any of us if we told our story if we talked about our lives if we talked about how we got here 
we'd have to say, well, God was really good. God was really faithful. God got me through all these terrible episodes that I've been through, but, I, but I'm here now by God's good grace. But then if someone said, and, and what about you? What's your part? What did you do? You'd say, I, I messed up every time I could. Every time I turned around, I messed it up. But God is faithful. Well, that's what you're going to read. Nehemiah recounts the story of Israel, the story of the Jews, the story of Jerusalem. And he's going to say, God was faithful, faithful, faithful. And even now, in the condition we're in, though we have the temple rebuilt and the walls have gone up, and even though Jerusalem is being restored, we are still under foreign rulers because God is still paying us back for how often and consistently we messed up. And that's the story of the Jews, the story of Israel at the end of the Old Testament. So that's where we're going tonight. But we're going to start right where we left off, which is chapter 8, starting at verse 13. And even though I told you that we're not going to go look at Zechariah's eschatological stuff, we're going to. Because there's one little section here that you're going to see the combination between Nehemiah talking historically and Zechariah talking predictively, eschatologically. And the importance of the Feast of Booths. Now let's talk about what the Feast of Booths is. The Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of the three feasts that God imposed on Israel and said that every year they had to come to Jerusalem, they had to be before him, eat before him, joy and celebration before him, but each of the feasts had different things that they were commemorating and different things that they were teaching. I know I'm using the word eschatology and eschatological a lot tonight, but in the eschatological future of Israel, you find that Jesus accomplished some of those feasts. For instance, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus satisfied that. He fulfilled that. He was the Passover lamb. The New Testament tells us that. He was the Paschal lamb. As soon as he started his ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. As soon as he said that, he was relating Jesus to the Passover. The sequence of events... Jesus' death, and then his burial, and then his resurrection, satisfied the feasts that were part of those spring cluster of feasts. So he was laid in the tomb right at the beginning of unleavened bread, and he rose on the first day of the week right as the feast of uh, first fruits was beginning. So those feasts are satisfied, those spring feasts are satisfied. But the Feast of Tabernacles was a time when the Jews had to go to Jerusalem for the express purpose of not living in their own homes. And they had to build lean-tos. They had to build temporary dwellings. And they had to live in those temporary dwellings and then destroy that dwelling when they went back home. And so people have pointed out that there are a great many things being taught by that, including the fact that where we're living right now, these tents of human flesh, these tabernacles we're in, are temporary. We're just here for a while, and then we're going to go home, and these temporary tabernacles will be destroyed. And then we'll get a new body, 
And I, for one, am very much in favor of the whole new body concept. I'm looking around the room and everybody's going, yes. Everybody in the room's got some kind of physical complaint, except perhaps Josiah. Everybody in the room's got something where they're going, man, a new body. That would be grand. Any day now. Well, one of the first things that the Jews did when Ezra read them the law, you will remember that a platform was built and he stood on the platform and he read out the law and Israel stood on their feet the whole time as he read it. And so one of the first things they did was they restored out of all the feasts, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's start reading, starting at verse 13 of Nehemiah 8. On the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people and the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written, to make temporary lean-to dwellings. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, and there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So since the days of Joshua, they had stopped keeping this regular every year seventh month feast where everybody did it all at once in Jerusalem. And now they've restored that because they recognize that this was not only the seventh month they were living in, but that God had given them a very particular feast they were supposed to keep in the seventh month. And so they restored the Feast of Tabernacles. Now keep your finger there for a moment. Turn over to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're in the New Testament, go back a little bit. And go all the way to the last chapter of the book of Zechariah, which is chapter 14. As you'll see next week, this portion of the book of Zechariah is going to talk about the time of tribulation. And then you're going to see that God is going to restore Israel and restore Jerusalem. He's even going to point out the Armageddon. And then finally, starting at chapter 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. And the Lord will be the only one. And his name will be the one. 
and all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it. There will be no more curse for Jerusalem will live and dwell in security. Okay, so he's clearly talking about end times things here. That Jerusalem is going to live safely in security and there will be no more curse. So that hasn't happened yet. Well, it's during that time period, during that time, that verse 16 comes up. So skip down to verse 16. This is after all the Gentile nations have come up against Jerusalem, and then God has fought for Jerusalem against the Gentile nations. Verse 16 says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up to Jerusalem from year to year, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Isn't that interesting? In fact, that's the only feast that's mentioned to yet happen in the millennium to come. That's the only eschatological feast that's still going to be observed year by year. But notice that it's not just the Jews that observe it. It's the Gentiles that have to observe it. The Gentiles, particularly, that came up against Jerusalem have to come and keep the Feast of Booths. I think what we've just read in Nehemiah and the reinstitution of the Feast of Booths is like a foreshadow of what's yet to come. God is restoring Jerusalem. What happens? Feast of Booths. Eschatologically, God's going to restore Jerusalem and defend Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. And verse 17 says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So God's very, very serious about this thing where the nations have to come up, worship at Jerusalem, worship the only God, and keep that Feast of Booths where they have to leave their dwellings, leave their safety, live in lean-tos, and just trust the provision of God and be reminded again that human life is temporary and that God is eternal. They have to go worship at Jerusalem. Okay, so that takes us to Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, The sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. They're repenting before God. Sackcloth, you know what sackcloth is? It's like burlap. Yeah, and you put it on because it rubs your skin constantly and makes you uncomfortable. There's no way to relax in sackcloth. No matter how you stand or how you sit, it's going to itch you, it's going to scratch you, it's just going to be uncomfortable. So they put on sackcloth, the most uncomfortable material they could cover their body with, and they fast, they don't eat, they're not celebrating, 
And then they're throwing dirt and rocks on their heads as they're bowing low to the earth. Verse 2, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. Now, let's assume for just a moment that we're only talking about the 12 hours of the day. If we're talking about 24-hour days, then they stood for six hours. If we're talking about the 12 hours of the day and 12 hours of the night, then they stood for three hours while the book of the law was read out to them. And again, I don't ever want to hear about how long my sermons are. Just back up off me, man. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth of the day, they confessed and they worshiped the Lord their God. Six hours out of the day. Confessing, worshiping, reading the law of God. Now, on the Levites' platform stood Joshua and Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Joshua and Cadmiel and Bani, Hashabniah and Sherebiah and Hodiah and Shebaniah and Pethahiah said, Arise, Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And then this is the speech that the Levites made to the assembled group of Jews who were, who were there for half the day as they read the law and as they remembered how they ended up in the position they were in. He recites their history. He recites their story. Oh, may the glorious name of God be blessed and exalted above all blessings and praise. Thou alone art God. Thou made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host and the earth and all that is on it and the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them And the heavenly hosts bow down before thee. Thou art the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, I know I said I'm just going to try to read this, but let me say parenthetically. Every once in a while, folks will say to me, uh, it's hard to pray. I want to pray. I, I know I should pray, but I don't know what I should pray. I don't know what I should pray about, what I should pray for, what I should say when I'm praying. Start there. Start right there. Start with arise. Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessings and praise. Start at thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all their host and the earth and all that is on it and the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them. And the heavenly hosts bow down before you. That's a good way to start your prayer right there. Identify who it is you're talking to. And start by worshiping and praising him. 
And now the history begins. Thou art the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Where do you find that? All the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way back at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And this, as I said, is the ending of the Old Testament. And thou didst find his heart faithful before thee, and you did make a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, of the Jebusite and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and didst hear their cry by the Red Sea. And thou didst perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of the land. For thou didst know that they acted arrogantly toward them. And you did make a name for thyself as it is to this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers thou didst hurl into the depths like a stone into raging waters. Now, by the way, there are folks who will tell you that that is just an allegory, that the story of the Red Sea parting and the story of Israel walking on dry land and then Egypt being drowned when God withdrew his hand and the water drowned them, people will say, well, that didn't really happen. That's not physically something that can happen. That's against nature. It's never happened again. We accept it as an allegory. We don't believe it as actual history. Do you notice here that the Jews to whom it actually happened took it as history? They recite it as part of their story because they're explaining how they got there. And a key essential part of how they got there was they were slaves in Egypt. And they were delivered out of Egypt because God brought plagues and because God with a mighty hand delivered them out of Egypt and redeemed them to bring them to the land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then their pursuers were drowned. And they see that as absolute historic fact. So regardless of what we, several thousand years later, think, that doesn't matter. It only matters whether or not it actually happened. And it is so much a part, such a key and central element of everything Israel believes about their history that I find it impossible to believe that that did not happen. And yet they somehow inculcated that as an essential element of who they are and how they got here. I think it's all true. They certainly think it's true. Because everything else they've described is true, why would they suddenly throw in a piece of fiction? You did divide the sea before them so that they passed through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their pursuers thou did hurl into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud thou didst lead them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then thou didst come down on Mount Sinai, and didst speak with them from heaven. And thou didst give them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and good commandments. So thou didst make known to them thy holy Sabbath, 
and did lay down for them commandments, statutes, and law through thy servant Moses. Thou didst provide bread from heaven for them, for their hunger. Thou didst bring forth water from a rock for them, for their thirst. And thou didst tell them to enter in order to possess the land which thou didst swear to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. Okay, so up until verse 16, the first 15 verses is just, God, you're wonderful, you're magnificent, you're great, you did, you did, you did. You did all this stuff. You did all these important things that are part of our story, that are part of our history. You've been faithful, you've been powerful, you've been glorious, you did all this for us. And then at verse 16, it gets to, and as for us, we just kept messing up. Everywhere we turned, we kept messing up. And it's been that way since you chose us. Anybody want to testify that it's been that way ever since God chose us? We just keep messing up. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. I've pointed out frequently that the tablets of stone include ten commandments, not ten suggestions. God took the time to say, I command you to do this. But they, in their stubbornness, in their hardness of heart, refused, would not listen. I would argue, based on Jesus' language, they could not listen. They had hard hearts. They didn't have ears that could hear. They didn't have eyes that could see. They didn't understand the glory of the God they were dealing with who was commanding them for their own good, for their own benefit. And yet, verse 17, they refused to listen. And they did not remember your wondrous deeds which thou hast performed among them, which is why this all started with the wondrous deeds. The promises and the Abraham and Moses and the deliverance from Egypt and the Sinai, all of those magnificent things the fathers forgot about. Then again, that is the human condition. It doesn't matter how much good God has done for us individually or nationally. We always forget. We get back at some point to, yeah, but my flesh. The example that I love to use, and I've used it a a handful of times, so I'll use it again here. 9-11, planes hit buildings. Suddenly, the TV was just littered with pictures of Congress standing on the steps of Congress singing, God bless America. At the Capitol Cathedral, there were services with man after man begging God to be kind and be good to America and restore America and protect America. And then God did. We haven't had an attack like that since 9-11. It's in my mind because today is September 5th. Okay, so we're less than a week away from September 11 again. And it's going to be the anniversary of September 11 and the TV is going to be littered again with stories of 9-11. And how we were attacked. And when we were attacked as a nation, we cried to God for protection. And then he protected us. And then what did we do? We forgot. We went back to our old ways. We went back to whatever foolishness we were involved in before we were attacked. 
Let things go bad, people cry to God. Let God do the good and the glorious and the wonderful things that only God can do in providing you life and food and breath and clothes. Let him do that every day and you'll get used to it. You'll get fat and happy and you'll, you'll forget. You'll think you're a self-made man. That's what I was going to say in my opinion. You say things went back the way they were before that happened. I argue things got worse. I think in many ways it has. So they refused to listen, and they did not remember your wonderful deeds which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But thou art a God of forgiveness. There's the contrast. People are just no darn good, but you're God. You're a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Aren't you glad for that phrase? That deserves a big old amen. Amen. Uh, The God who does not forsake us when we act just like we are, when we get stubborn or rebellious or forgetful, he remains ever faithful, long-suffering. His loving kindness lasts forever. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Verse 18, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, And said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. Do you remember that story? Moses goes up on the mountain. He's talking to God. God's giving him the Ten Commandments, laying out the law. He comes down with the tablets of stone cut out by the very finger of God, written by the very finger of God. He brings them down and they're worshiping a calf, a golden calf. And when he asks what this is about... Aaron, his brother, says, I don't know. We just took some gold. We threw it in the fire, and lo, out came this calf. Right, like that happened. And then they were saying, look, this is your God, because the Egyptians had so many golden gods and had so many gods of metal and stone and had such a pantheon of gods that they were able to take a god like a golden calf and say, this is the particular god that brought you out of Egypt, and they start worshiping it. God would have been well within his rights at that point to say, okay, I'm done with you. I brought you here, and you worship somebody else for it? You worship something you made with your hands? You worship a dumb idol that doesn't talk and doesn't speak, doesn't think, doesn't move? When you move as a group, you have to pick that up and take it with you. It can't do anything. And that's who you think delivered you from Egypt? God should have just said, I'm done with you. But verse 19 says, but you, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And thou didst give thy good spirit to instruct them, thy manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth. God had already been feeding them manna every day. 
And here he's marveling at the fact that God didn't withhold the manna once they rebelled. God continued to provide for his people despite their stubbornness and rebellion. Do you know, by the way, what the word manna means? Do you know what the word manna means? You're going to love this word. You're going to use this word for the rest of your life. What does manna mean? What is it? It's actually what the word means. Because they walked outside and they saw this stuff laying on the ground. And they picked it up and kind of saw that it was good to eat. And they said, what is it? And that became its name from that point forward. God every day would throw a bunch of what is it on the ground. And they would eat it until they got sick of it. God's provision every single day, free food, walk outside, it's there. Till they reached the point where they said, my soul loathes this light bread. You did give them water for their thirst. Indeed, for 40 years, you did provide for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want, and their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. And thou didst also give them kingdoms and peoples, and thou didst allot them to them as a boundary. And they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. And thou didst make their sons as numerous as the stars of heaven. And thou didst bring them into the land, which thou hadst told their fathers to enter it and possess it. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And thou didst subdue before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. Okay, so that takes us now... We've gone from Genesis and the promise of Abraham, then we've gone through the five books of Moses, and now we're at the book of Joshua in reciting the history of the Jews. Joshua led them into the promised land. And thou didst give them, the enemies, into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. And they captured fortified cities. And a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, that means wells that were already dug, vineyards that already existed, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and they grew fat and they reveled in thy great goodness. So when they came into the land that was full of milk and honey, they had homes already built. Because there were already people living there that they drove out. There were already vines. There's already wine. There's already olives. There's already oil. There's already trees in abundance. There's fruit to eat. And what do they do? They grow fat and happy. So verse 26 says, but they became disobedient. And they rebelled against thee. And they cast thy law behind their backs. And they killed thy prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to thee. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, thou didst deliver them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. And when they cried to thee in the time of their distress, thou did hear from heaven. And according to thy great compassion, thou didst give them deliverers who deliver them from the hand of their oppressors. That takes us into the time of the judges. Israel, as you read through that book, 
You read that a generation would rise up and cry out to God, and God would send them a judge who would defend them and fight for them and deliver them. And then for that generation, they would remember the goodness of God, and then their children would start to forget. And by the third generation, they had forgotten everything that, had, that God had done for them just previously. So verse 28 says, But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore thou didst abandon them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to thee, thou didst hear from heaven, and many times thou didst rescue them according to your compassion. And you admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly. They did not listen to your commandments, but they sinned against thine ordinances. By which, if a man observes those ordinances, it will then in them he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stiffened their neck, and they would not listen. However, thou didst bear with them for many years, and admonished them by thy spirit through thy prophets, and yet they would not give ear. Therefore, thou didst give them into the hands of the people of the lands, and nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them. For thou art a gracious and a compassionate God. Let me comment at this moment. I think God's graciousness, God's consistency and compassion is seen most clearly against the backdrop of the rebellion of his people. When his people continue to sin and to rebel and to go their own way, that's when the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God is most obvious. Now, I'm not saying go out and rebel more so that God can be seen more clearly. That's why Paul had to address the question, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And his answer was, God forbid. But the fact is, God's good graces show most brightly against the darkness of his people's rebellion. Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them. And let's be honest, he should have. If he weren't faithful to his word, he would have been done with them a long time ago. But thou art a gracious and a compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God, who dost keep covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before thee. What he's saying is, yes, you took us through all that, but recognize that we did go through it, and there was pain involved. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before thee, which has come upon us and our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and on all thy people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. So what did he just do by saying Assyria? He goes all the way back to the first deportation of the northern tribes by the king of Assyria and then all the way down through the deportation of the southern tribes and through Babylon and through Medo-Persia and now they're getting ready to be under the hand of Greece. And they're saying, just, this has been hard on us. 
We don't even have our own king. We're not even an independent people anymore. At least recognize that it's been difficult and it's been this hard ever since Assyria. However, thou art just in all that has come upon us. For thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept the law or paid attention to thy commandments or thine admonitions with which thou hast admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness which thou hast given them, with the broad and rich land which thou didst set before them, they did not serve thee or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which thou didst give our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. Why did they say that? Because even though they were back in Jerusalem, they were still under the hand of Medo-Persia. They didn't have their own king. They were still ruled over by foreign kings. And look, we're back in the land that you promised us, but we're still slaves in it. And it's abundant produce is for the kings, the foreign kings, the Gentile kings, get all that good produce. Whom thou hast set over us because of our sins, and they also rule over our bodies, our physical bodies, and they rule over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. And now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders and our Levites and our priests. Chapter 10, now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And then there's the names of all the leaders of all the families and all the Levites and all the scribes. They've all signed a document pledging to return themselves to the law of God. Go to verse 28 of chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen and their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. In other words, they're agreeing that they are promising to do God's law and agreeing that if they don't do it, they should be cursed. They're calling down a curse on their own heads, on their own families, on their own children. That's how serious they are about we're going to do it. To walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant. And to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances, and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or the holy days. And we will forego the crops the seventh year. And the exaction of every debt 
In other words, they're going to return to the seven-year Sabbath, and they're going to return to the year of Jubilee, and they're not going to intermarry with the foreign peoples, and they're going to start respecting the Sabbath days and the high days and the holy days. Verse 32, we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread for the continual grain offerings, for the continual burnt offerings, and the Sabbaths, and the new moons, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests and the Levites, and the people, in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of our Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. And in order that they might bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. So they're reestablishing everything that Moses has commanded them in, ter in terms of not only how they worship, but how they're going to conduct themselves as a society, how they're going to provide for the work of the Lord, how they're going to provide for the temple, and that they're going to cast lots so that different people at different times are responsible to bring wood just to burn for the sacrifices, and that everybody's going to bring their first fruit and to bring to the house this is verse 36 and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God we will also bring the first of our dough our contributions the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. And the priest and the sons of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary and the priests who are ministering and the gatekeepers and the singers, and thus we will not neglect the house of the Lord. Whew, that was a bunch of reading. but not three to six hours worth. So back up off me, man. Steve's on my side in that one. Now, we're not very far from the end of Nehemiah. There is only, what, 13 chapters in Nehemiah, and we just finished off verse 10, so there's really only three more chapters. Next week, we're going to look at Zechariah and see some of the eschatological inspiration for the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And you're going to see that God just simply is not done either with Israel or with Jerusalem. The Bible and history name a whole lot of places on planet Earth, a whole lot of cities, a whole lot of places that were very grand. Babylon was once an amazing city. You may know that of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon are mentioned. Because Babylon was once a magnificent city. Is it there now? 
No. Cities have come and gone. Places come and go. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. Through it all, through the entire history of the world, there's been Israel. There's been Jerusalem. That's amazing. You go back and look at Abram, and he encountered Melchizedek, who is said to be the king of Salem. Jeru Salem. I mean, it's an ancient, ancient city that still exists. You can still go and find it. You can get on an airplane and fly to Jerusalem. Why? Because God's not done with Jerusalem. God is still actively preserving Jerusalem. God is still actively protecting his people. Israel still exists and Jerusalem still exists because God is faithful. That same God that we just read about is still the God who is protecting his people. The folks who want to write off Jerusalem, the people who want to write off Israel, will say, well, God can't be faithful to them because look at how badly they've rebelled. And they didn't keep his law. And even today, so many of them are unbelievers, so secular. So God can't possibly still be involved with Jerusalem or the Jews. But what did we just read? They have admitted over and over again, God is good, God is faithful, God is consistent to every promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they admit, and we're sinful, and we're rebellious, and we're hard-hearted, and we didn't do the law, and we didn't appreciate what you gave us, and we rebelled continually, but because of who you are, you didn't destroy us, you didn't get rid of us, you didn't annihilate us completely. Proof yet again of the ongoing endurance, patience, long-suffering, and loving-kindness of God. And they exist today, is my point. Because nothing about God has changed. And nothing about his relationship with Israel has changed. And next week, we're going to see Zechariah's eschatological promises to Israel and Jerusalem. And they're going to read like the book of Revelation. It's going to be very New Testament-y, if that's a word. Not New Testament-y. But New Testament-like. And you're going to see God again just making promise, promise, promise. And then, for some reason, people would like us to believe that here we are. We're at the end of the Old Testament. We're, we're at Nehemiah. We're at Malachi. We're at the end of the history of the Old Testament. We're about to enter the 400 years of the inter- intertestamental period where God is essentially silent and then Jesus walks on the planet and people want you for some reason to believe that during those 400 years God changed his mind God decided no I'm not about Israel anymore despite the fact that he sent his son who is called the redeemer of Israel despite the fact that while he's a child he's lifted up in the temple and prophesied over as the redeemer of Israel. And so that's perfectly consistent with everything we know about the Old Testament promises and prophecies about God's consistency to Israel. And they could look at their own history. They could look at their own failures. They could look at where they started and where they were at that point. They could recite their entire history 
And what comes out of it? God is faithful. God is consistent. His loving kindness doesn't change. If you come away with nothing else tonight, come away with that. God is consistent. God is faithful. And God didn't wipe you out because his loving kindness lasts forever. And you ought to be really, really thankful that that's the case. Because let's be honest. If God had cast you away the first time you were worthless, how long ago would that have been for most of you? But God is consistent, and that's why we keep saying over and over again, it's all about God. It's all about the worship of God. It's about the praise of God. It's about the glory of God. For what reason? Because there's just nothing within us that would cause a God like that to value us. What he's demonstrating is his own faithfulness and consistency, loving kindness, and grace, grace, grace. And it's all the way through the Bible, beginning to end. Got it? All right. Questions about that? Yes, sir, Micah. I have a question. This is maybe more of an appropriate question for next week. But um, it came to my mind when we were looking at Zechariah. In Zechariah, where it talks about the Lord coming down on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives splits. There's a big valley between the two. There's the mountain that pushes to the north and the mountain to the south. I know the Mount of Olives has been a cemetery for 3,000 years. Is there a chance that that valley between there could be the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel? Could be. The promise among the Jews that one day that valley was going to split and the graves were going to open, they combine those two ideas because there is a red... Ezekiel's prophecy is very specific. When Messiah comes. Oh, yeah. So it has to so, be a valley somewhere. It's going to be a valley somewhere, yeah. But who knows? And yes, that would have been a more appropriate question for next week. <laughs> yeah, but I, then I risk forgetting about it. So. That's all right. I forgive you with loving kindness. <laughs> yes, sir. There's, there's a nice parallel to chapter 10 in the testimony of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Yeah, and what does he do? He recites the history of Israel. Yeah, because that was just such a part of their thinking and culture, and every thoroughgoing Jew knew that history by heart. But it's a history that doesn't speak well of them. It speaks well of God. Yes, sir? I was trying to pinpoint where the curse is being lifted. I mean, is it going to be lifted during the thousand-year reign or after? Can you help me with that? I would think during the thousand-year reign, yes, because Jesus will be here with them. And the curse they're talking about is the curse they're under because of their failure to keep the law. And so once Christ is among them and reestablishing worship correctly, then I think that's the lifting of the curse. Partially because he says that if they don't come, I know. But if to celebrate the, the Gentiles, if the right. Gentiles don't come, there's, there's still, still a curse. There's still a curse on yeah. the earth. Right. But not for so, Israel for not keeping the law. And when, when you think about the fact that King Jesus is ruling, yeah. and still at the end of that thousand year period, there can be this mass rebellion against yeah. 
a God they have seen in the flesh. What does that say for humans? I, I, there are a couple of things that occurred to me while you were talking about this. One was, as you're going through the history of Israel as related to Ezra 9, um, Nehemiah. The early history after the Exodus, those same people who worshipped the golden calf were the ones who said, tell God not to talk to us from Sinai anymore because it's too terrifying. So they knew who God was. And yet he was silent for 40 days. And they, were they go back to their foreign gods. Yeah. The other thing is this really interesting little verse at the end of Zechariah 14 where it says there will be no traitors in the house of the Lord. And I'm thinking to myself, who's the first person who decided to set up shop, be a money changer, sell sheep, whatever, in the temple? Did they have no clue yeah. what Zechariah said? No wonder Jesus was yeah. angry. Yeah. We human beings are just so perverse. It's amazing, isn't it? And you see it time and time again in the Bible. You see it consistently just in human activity. And yet you can turn on the TV and hear things like, people are good and generally good and well-meaning. And, yeah. and why do bad things happen to good people? And, That's right. I, don't, I got my answer. I was speaking of the curse of what we got cursed the man because of what Adam did. Oh, you're talking about that curse. I was talking about an entirely different curse. When will that be? I would think ultimately probably New Jerusalem time. New, new heavens, new earth. Yeah. I would think that would be where it would fit. Yeah. Now from now on, when you talk about curses, will you be specific about which curse? So we... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else? I'm glad that this portion of Nehemiah inspired so much interest and stimulated conversation. You should have spent more time on the list of names. I do, too. Oh, I, I think so, too. Yeah, that's why I didn't. I sat at home and gave it a shot and went, no, no. no. You could have asked Josiah to read the chapter. Sure, I could have. I could have asked you to read the chapter. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.